Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's life sciences and healthcare podcast, still the home office edition. Today, I'm sitting down with Jane Kalinina, Bert Lau and Mike Druckmann to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on cell tissue and gene therapy products. As always, I'm keeping the entry short since we're going to each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi everyone, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare podcast. Today, I have, jo- have Jane Kalinina, Bert Lau and Mike Druckmann on the podcast. And before we dive right into the topic, you know we are talk about a little bit about ourselves. So Jane, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Really quick? Thank you so much, Julius, for having us. So like you said, my name is Jane Kalina. I am a rising fifth year associate in the FDA Pharma Biopharmaceutical Group in Washington, DC. My background is in microbiology and cell science, and I have a doctorate in pharmacy. So generally, a lot of times, some of the things I focus on are intersection of science with legal issues. That's my sweet spot or a big interest of mine. I work pretty closely with, with Mike Druckmann and Bert on issues regarding cell tissue gene therapies within the regenerative medicine space. And I've been at the firm a little bit over two and a half years. And prior to that, I did a little bit of policy work and legal work at a different firm. So really happy to be here. It's always interesting for me to learn about the colleagues and the background they have. And it's so mind boggling to me because over here in Europe, when you study law, you study law. You don't right. it al- already <laughs> take so much time of your life. You're not kind of focusing on anything else. And when, when I talk to you guys, every time somebody has like a, a pharmaceutical background, medical de- background, mm-hmm. it's mind boggling to me and it's super interesting and gives us definitely a different perspective. But anyhow, I just wanted to drop that because it's always super interesting to me uh, learning about that. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Julius. So I'm Mike Druckmann. I'm a partner in the FDA Pharma Biotech Group. I'm based in D.C. Uh, I came to Hogan Lovells in 2007 after having worked at FDA, both as a litigator and then as a counselor for biologics. And when I started at, at Hogan, I started counseling companies and largely in the biologics area, but I founded our firm's global cell tissue and gene therapy working group, which tries to bring the firm's complete expertise from around the world in many disciplines to the benefit of companies in the regenerative medicine space. To do a little crossroads, Mike is always a veteran on the podcast because he had a one of the first episodes recorded in a conference room in Baltimore back literally a year ago <laughs> with one mic, really low tech with Arne Thurman. So if you haven't listened to it so far, do that. It's uh, definitely a different experience than we have right now. <laughs> but Bert, uh, hopping over to you, can you give me a quick introduction to you? Sure. Thanks, Julius. My name is Bert Lau, and I'm a senior associate in the drug group here at Hogan Lovells. I operate out of the Los Angeles office uh, with a focus on clinical trials compliance and life cycle management. Prior to joining Hogan Lovells, uh, I obtained a PhD in biomedical engineering, and I certainly have a keen interest in cell and gene therapies. So I'm very much looking forward to the conversation today. All right. Again, pretty impressive. <laughs> the reason why I dragged you onto the podcast today, we wanted to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on cell tissue and gene therapy products. Thank you, Julius. So before the virus spread, the area of cell tissue and gene therapy was booming. And gene therapy, for example, had been really gotten a big push from the former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And uh, many, many companies started to get into the field that has great promise. It promises to bring actual cures to patients with genetic diseases. And some of those are actually cellular, like the CAR-T therapies. And then there's a, a whole range of human tissue products, which are very innovative and have brought relief to patients in a number of areas that traditional medicine hasn't. So it has great promise. Unfortunately, when the virus hit, it really started to strain FDA's resources. 
and um, made it very difficult for FDA to continue that great priority that it was giving. And it's caused slowdowns in a number of different ways for this for this industry. Still going pretty strong, but there's been some interesting impacts. So Jane, you want to fill us in a little bit on some of the details of sure, what's been no. happening? Thank you so much, Mike. Um, and just to kind of put a number to some of the progress that we've seen before COVID, you know, as of December 31st, 2019, FDA had over 900 active INDs for gene therapy products. And at one of the conferences I went to, Peter Marks estimated that FDA expected 40 to 60 products to be launched by 2030. So, you know, in, in, in fall of 2019, FDA had all these goals and just a lot of momentum, and they had plans to issue, implement a, a lot of guidances. And we saw that in January 2020, actually, FDA released about a series of really guidance-specific, really helpful recommendations and guidances for these products. However, with COVID, essentially, there's been a huge slowdown where the agency, specifically the Office of Tissue and Advanced Therapies, is being really overwhelmed with COVID-19 uh, priorities. So Peter Marks has been talking recently a lot that 80% of his time is now devoted to COVID-related activities. So this has essentially you know, resulted in people having to do written responses instead of meetings with the agencies. Clinical trials are being impacted. In terms of new guidances being issued, I know FDA's delayed on a few that we were expecting to see. So just generally, you know, everybody's watching closely um, with what's going to happen because we're seeing a slowdown in bindings being filed and just generally FDA is really strained. Bert, I know the inspections are being affected too. So I don't know if you have any insights that you could share on that point. Yeah, thanks, Jane. Uh, certainly, yeah, inspections are one area that has been significantly impacted by COVID. Uh, due to the travel restrictions from COVID, FDA's ability to conduct inspections of drug manufacturing facilities has been significantly disrupted. Uh, back in March, um, FDA announced that it was temporarily postponing domestic and foreign routine surveillance facility inspections. And in July, FDA did say that it was beginning to work towards resuming prioritized domestic inspections. However, uh, one area that we think is uh, being significantly disrupted by uh, COVID is FDA's ability to conduct inspections of foreign manufacturing sites. Uh, in August, um, FDA issued a guidance kind of outlining uh, its stance on conducting foreign inspections. And what it said was uh, foreign pre-approval and for-cause inspection assignments that are not deemed mission critical remain temporarily postponed. And FDA elaborated further and said that Mission-critical inspections are those that can relate to breakthrough therapy designations or uh, regenerative medicine advanced therapy designations, uh, products that have received those designations. And where, where this is especially critical for companies are in cases where, you know, under normal circumstances, FDA would have to conduct a pre-approval or pre-licensure inspection of a foreign manufacturing facility if that company relies on one of those facilities for its product. But now with the ability of FDA to conduct those inspections being disrupted, I think what we're seeing is companies are now facing the prospect of having the licensure or approval of their products possibly being delayed until FDA can resume uh, conducting these foreign facility inspections. You know, FDA has suggested some possible alternative approaches to conducting in-person inspections, including relying on inspection reports from other foreign regulatory partners or requesting records from the applicants. Some have even suggested that FDA could conduct uh, so-called virtual inspections where they could do the inspections remotely. But so far, I don't think we've seen FDA fully embrace these kinds of alternative approaches. Uh, so it may very well be the case that companies are, are not going to have, have to be facing the, the very real possibility that approval of their products may be delayed uh, until travel conditions return to normal and FDA can resume conducting these foreign inspections in person. I have a quick question on that. From my perspective, my understanding, if, especially when you're a company with a single product and trying to get an approval, the amount of financial backlash you have on in this situation puts your complete business in danger. Or am I right? Am I wrong here? You have a timeline you normally would like to to follow, 
and during COVID, you you at least need to cover your costs. And you for sure, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, Julius. The the timing of approval for a company's product, uh, particularly if this is a company's first product, uh, can be critical to the financial health of the company. You know, uh, investors are always looking to see when a product might get approved. So yes, certainly the ability of FDA to conduct inspections, and if that ability is compromised, could have a dramatic impact on the financial health of the company. One of the things that we focus on is um, trying to advocate for companies. I mean, FDA actually is constantly exercising its judgment about how to prioritize its resources, but it has a fair amount of flexibility in that respect. And we've seen times where good advocacy can make a difference in a company getting the attention of some key people. Sometime, you know, in this in this period, having some angle related to COVID can make a difference. But there are other ways that we can raise attention. We have a lot of contacts at the agency, or just simply reflecting back on the agency's priorities can sometimes make a difference. But that issue of inspections is something that we continue to uh, survey for our clients and prepare to help companies try to avoid the, uh, the, as you say, Julius, the hit that they would take from a delay that that can cause. I will mention that uh, there are other areas where FDA has exercised its discretion to help companies um, during this time. And one area is plasma collection. As you can imagine, people that are that had regularly donated their plasma as a part of blood, it's much more difficult now. There's a concern about going to collection centers and the risks, and and with more people getting sick, the the numbers are going down, and we've seen a dramatic drop in the um, availability of human plasma, which are very critical for many products. There are many drug products that are derived from human plasma, like hemophilia drugs drugs for people that have severe immune deficiencies and otherwise would have like the bubble boy is an example of, of that, that kind of disease. And so these are critical products and it's really important that the supply of the raw material, the human donated plasma doesn't get limited. And FDA has exercised its discretion and judgment to recognize that. So one example is that it issued in April, a guidance called alternative procedures for blood and blood components during the COVID-19 public health emergency. And FDA explicitly announced some leniency in some of the strict requirements. There are very strict requirements, as you might imagine, to ensure that donors are free of disease and are healthy so that the plasma is, is appropriate and safe. But FDA, and so there are many overlapping protections, and FDA exercised its judgment in this document to ease up some of those just enough to try to help ease the supply. For example, it, it lengthened, or it shortened the amount of time that the companies have to keep a product in quarantine before they do anything with it, based on the historical trends and the evidence that it's it's seen about what can be safe. But that's just one. So so that's one example of way the way FDA exercises its judgment to try to achieve an important public policy result. So I'd like to transition to another area of discretion that FDA has, has exercised at this time, and that inv involves a certain category of human tissues for transplantation or implantation. So there's a, a category of tissues which are designed to be basically transplanted tissue. It's easy to, it's um, sort of a fundamental principle that like during surgery, when a tissue is transplanted, like skin grafts or other kinds of products that are, are transplanted, there are one-off kinds of procedures. And to try to go through the full drug approval, it would, would not be feasible. So FDA created a framework under a provision of the Public Health Service Act, uh, Section 361, of that, which allows a certain category of products to be used by physicians without pre-approval from FDA, as long as they meet certain criteria to ensure that they're safe and they continue to function the way they, they did in the donor before transplantation. In 2017, FDA issued a guidance document which was designed to try to clarify the field. The problem with that exception is that many companies sort of took advantage unfairly of the exception. And as a result, FDA became very concerned that there are a number of companies marketing products improperly. The commissioner himself 
I've talked about rogue stem cell clinics and concern that there's a lot of products out there that really shouldn't be. So in 2017, FDA issued a guidance document to try to clarify and narrow the field, but it recognized that all the industry couldn't adjust immediately, particularly the legitimate players would take some time. And there were some products that were marketed in good faith beforehand, but after FDA narrowed the categories and narrowed its interpretation of the regulations, it became clear, at least to FDA, that some of these would have to transition and require prior approval from FDA. This category is known as 361 tissues, or the longer name is human cells, tissues, and cellular and tissue-based products, or HCTPs. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So, I to yes, say that three times. Not, yes. Yeah. Not the most elegant name, but so it's called 361 HCTPs. And so there's a, a now we're faced with a situation where companies ha have had three years, and it was supposed to, uh, at what FDA said, is in 2017 that said, well, we're gonna give companies three years to sort of figure things out. And if they need prior approval from FDA to start that process, they recognize three years is really not enough, but it started that process. And that was that period was supposed to have ended this November, November 20th of 2020. But it, in the summer, FDA acknowledged that due to the COVID emergency, FDA's own resources to try to deal and help companies try to determine their status really got impacted. So they issued another guidance document that uh, in July that extended this period of enforcement discretion until May 31st, 2021. So we, we have, we're, we've, so now it's created this period of enforcement discretion where a number of these companies can continue to market, but have to really be thinking seriously about their status. And we have a number of clients that are doing that and are starting this process of transitioning them to be fully approved FDA products, known as biological products or biologics. So Jane, I'll turn to you and ask you if you have any insights into the challenges that these companies face and what's involved in this uh, transition process. Thank you so much, Mike. I think you've raised a very important issue that a lot of companies are facing right now, you know, having to deal with COVID, everything we just talked about, FDA being backlogged, overwhelmed with resources, you know, trying to allocate them responsibly. So essentially, you know, some companies are caught in the middle right now where, you know, we have a public health crisis and they are considering, you know, do, do, do these criteria apply to us? Do we need to file an IND and seek a BLA? However, you know, everyone's resource restrained and having to do that in a timely manner is difficult. So sometimes some of the things we're working on right now with certain clients is having a transition point in place where they are seeking FDA feedback for, let's say, a pre-IND meeting to meet with the agency and potentially file an IND or potentially seek a, you know, a, a request for designation or feedback on their product to see, well, how do they fit in this criteria and can they be a 361 product? At the same time, under this enforcement discretion policy that's been announced and this extension that goes until May 2021, 20, they are continuing to market. So some people are taking a parallel track where they are going to both simultaneously seek FDA pre-approval for their products while continuing to market under the current policy. And some of the challenges there, as you, everybody can imagine, I mean, one is manufacturing. How do you, you know, ramp up your manufacturing to pretty much meet GMP requirements for biologics while at the same time commercialize your products under this policy of enforcement discretion? It's, it's a lot harder than, you know, one might think, you know, simply to change over. The biologic standards are really complex and many times don't fit super neatly within the framework for tissue-based products, you know, that naturally might not have the same metrics or the same specificity as certain biologics. They're more meant to be, you know, raw tissue-based products that are organic in nature. And similarly, how do you market these? You know, how do you at the same time stay within the boundaries of 361 homologous use um, criteria, which is one of the criteria under this category, and market your product under this enforcement discretion period while at the same time seek an IND and a BLA? So really, I mean, some companies that are really trying to do the right thing are finding themselves in a really difficult place because those these um, timelines that FDA has sought out are really, really fast. And while there has been an extension till May 2021, you know, as we all know, you know, getting a BLA 
application in and approved just takes significant amount of time and resources. So it kind of goes back to what we, how we started out. You know, with COVID, everyone's impacted. Clinical trials are impacted. Resources are impacted. FDA's ability to give you feedback is impacted. So, you know, this has been a big challenge, but, you know, right now, currently, it's a big part of um, what we're doing is helping these companies through the process. And I know, I don't know if, Julius, you want to ask any question. I know, Bert, you have some insight as to the difficulty of, you know, trying to fit, you know, tissues and cell-based products to biologic standards. But I'll, I'll pause and let anybody ask questions, you know. One of the things which came to my mind was, Mike, you were on the on the other episode talking about the whole supply chain issue coming up. And that depends, especially because I'm pretty sure that not all products are fully produced and created in the US, for example. So a lot of product coming out of Asia or going back and forth between different dif different jurisdictions, different regions with all different statuses on their COVID. Uh, situation one country maybe doesn't have any cases anymore surprisingly but my question mike maybe you can give a quick insight there as well because i'm pretty sure that is that is extensive yes continuing issue i mean in the blood space there's actually a policy it's actually not written to law but there's a policy that for blood derivative products derived from human plasma or blood have to be collected under U.S. facilities, so U.S. plasma collection. But most of them are actually then shipped to Europe, where most of the, the factories, the plants that then manufacture them further into the final product are located. And so, and then they're shipped back into the United States or elsewhere in the country. And so it does raise a whole bunch of interesting questions. And when the president came out with one of his executive orders that had some emphasis on buy American, meaning products manufactured in the U.S. would get priority, there was a question about, well, what does that mean? And do these products then have a disadvantage because of the multiple manufacturing places. Another, you know, in gene therapy, for example, I know that there are some specialty manufacturing that can only take place or testing that can only take place outside of the United States. And so it's really interesting to see that products sometimes are shipped, are manufactured partially in the United States, shipped somewhere else, like to Europe, and then shipped back. And for many of these products, well, all almost all of these products are manufactured from actual human material, which raises a whole nother area of, of concern and interest and challenge when you've got human donors that need to donate the materials. So it creates a very interesting, a bunch of challenges on the supply chain. And we, Hogan Lovells, have experts really from all different ranges. As you mentioned, Julius, we have Arna Thierman in, in Germany, who's a supply chain expert. And we have intellectual property experts, environmental experts, people that can help you sort of manage and, and plan out each of the challenges along the way. So thank you. That's a good question. I, I do, you know, and the one other thing before we turn to Bert, I'd like to have Bert sort of explain a, another of the challenges, but I just would mention that companies are now anticipating the May 2021 deadline and realize they're going to have to plan for after that. And that's another thing that we're working with companies to do is to think about advocating to FDA about, is there an opportunity for FDA to exercise discretion to allow a safe harbor for companies that are playing the game the way they should and are working to transition, spending a lot of investment into good manufacturing practice, shouldn't they be accorded some opportunity to continue on the market and importantly, to continue to give patients access to these products that they've grown very accustomed to relying on. Many of them are for pain and for wounds and for joint problems. And to have them all of a sudden cut off from the market would be devastating for a lot of reasons. So it's another area of advocacy that we're in. And part of the issue here that makes it, Jane mentioned some of the reasons it takes so long. Part of the reason, as she mentioned, is that the standard biological product and drug standards do not really apply well or easily to human tissue. I mean, think about it. An example is 
the placenta. There are many products that after the placenta is, is birthed, it's a very valuable tissue that has growth factors and, and many other properties, extremely valuable. But the potency standards, for example, of testing that drugs that require an actual an assay, a, a test that's usually chemical or molecular, um, do, often is very difficult to apply to a whole tissue, which is a very complex thing that has many, many different kinds of molecules and chemicals and things. And it's very difficult to figure out those standards. So I'd look, Burr, I'd like to turn to you. I know you've got some experience in other ways that biological standards are difficult to apply in the cell tissue and gene therapy area. So I'd love to hear your insight on that. Thanks very much, Mike. So yeah, as you and Jane mentioned, there are certainly challenges in thinking about how to accommodate FDA's traditional biological standards to and to adapt them in order to accommodate the complexity of these cell tissue and gene therapies. And one area uh, where I think we can see those challenges is with evaluating the orphan drug sameness provisions for uh, gene therapies. So with orphan drugs, uh, one significant financial incentive that FDA provides for the development of these therapies is that FDA will offer seven years of exclusive uh, marketing exclusivity to sponsors that develop these orphan drugs. And in order to be eligible for this orphan exclusivity, the drug has to not be the same as any previously approved drug. So the framework for evaluating whether a drug is the same as a previously approved drug is outlined in FDA's regulations. And there's a there's the the regulations outline both a test for small molecule drugs, the traditional small molecule drugs as well as for larger, more complex drugs. And FDA released a guidance earlier this year on how to apply the orphan drug sameness test to gene therapies. And it did utilize this larger molecule test for evaluating the sameness of gene therapy products. And the, the large molecule test relies on this concept of evaluating the principal molecular structural features of a product. Uh, so this differs from the small molecule test in that you're not looking so much at specific structural changes as you are sort of these broader structural features of a product. And that can be helpful in accommodating the greater complexity of these gene therapy products. So in the guidance, FDA described how, uh, for example, the transgenes of a gene therapy um, could constitute a principal molecular structural feature such that if two gene therapies had different transgenes, then they would not have the same principal molecular structural features, and hence they would not be the same drug for purposes of determining eligibility for orphan drug exclusivity. Uh, similarly, um, FDA also said the, the vectors, if they, they use vectors from different viral classes, then FDA would consider those two gene therapies to not be the same drug. But uh, I think the, the guidance, uh, I think, is, is being viewed as very much as a, a starting point for uh, how you can use, how you can evaluate uh, sameness for orphan drug purposes for gene therapies, given how complex these products are. Um, the guidance is just about four pages long, and about half of that is background. So um, there's, there's still a lot of room for FDA to kind of elaborate on how exactly we can apply the orphan drug sameness test uh, to, to figure out how we can accommodate the, the, the complexities of gene therapy products. And um, I think stakeholders in this space um, are calling, for example, for more details on um, what aspects of gene therapies would constitute principal molecular structural features and how FDA may evaluate different gene therapies on a case-by-case -case basis. But um, is this then, just a quick quick question in between, if when you don't have as much guidance, and I think four pages is not much from my understanding, right. <laughs> is this 
a chance or is that a risk you have to take because there is not much guidance for you when you when you um, try to develop such product um yeah that's a great you... question uh, i i think we would absolutely counsel you know our clients that this is uh, an opportunity to provide input on what they would like to see future versions of this guidance address. So uh, the, the guidance that FDA issued in January on orphan drug seeingness for gene therapies was a draft guidance. Uh, so FDA is definitely soliciting input from stakeholders uh, as to what future versions of the guidance should address. And so I think we would very much communicate to our clients that this is an opportunity for them to perhaps submit a comment to FDA as to what particular issues they would like to see FDA address. And that's something that we can assist them with is drafting these kinds of comments to FDA. And Bert, I'd just like to um, make sure people understand sort of what's at stake. Can you spell out sort of the, the policy determination that FDA has to make in terms of the impact of a period of, mon of exclusivity or monopoly for covering a product and what that might mean both for, for competitors, but also for patients in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is uh, this seven years of orphan drug exclusivity that FDA can award to eligible products is uh, a significant financial incentive for drug manufacturers to, to make these orphan drugs. And without this incentive, orphan drug exclusivity, a drug manufacturer might uh, make the decision that the market just simply isn't large enough for them to pursue development in this space. So uh, whether or not a drug is eligible for this exclusivity is a critical determination that these companies have to make. And so figuring out, for example, whether a drug that you make, is it similar or different enough from an already existing product to get this exclusivity can be a major determining factor as to whether the company decides to pursue development of such an orphan drug. So it's an important issue both for um, the drug company in deciding whether to pursue development of this drug as well as the, the patients who are, are seeking uh, treatment for uh, a very rare disease that might not otherwise have a treatment option available. Right. And the balance, another part of the balance is about price. Even though FDA doesn't really focus on price, the ex, the monopoly period allows the companies to charge a very high price in order to recover the costs of developing a drug for a very, a rare disease, a very small patient population. And so it's a very difficult balance to make to allow that incentive but not preclude other companies from coming in with a legitimate improvements that might help those very patients and also allowing a fair amount of competition eventually to drive the price down. So as more competitors come in, the, the price can get driven down at a fair point in time. So I think that's just an important, very difficult policy decision that FDA has to weigh and then the companies have to advocate and judge for their own interests. So I'd like to, and there's another area where FDA's judgment is very you know, important in a developing area and that's individualized therapies. I know Bert and Jane, you both have some, some thoughts on that. In, in terms of individualized therapies, I, I think that represents another area where we see some challenges in terms of how can we adapt FDA's traditional biologic standards in order to accommodate the complexity of a new class of products. So individualized therapies, I think, represent a really exciting area of uh, cell tissue and, and gene therapy development. Uh, FDA held a, a workshop earlier this year in March where they raised the idea of individualized therapies and sought input from stakeholders as to what the regulatory issues with developing these individualized therapies are. So to set up some background, uh, what individualized therapies are, Dr. Peter Marks gave an opening presentation where he compared individualized therapies to a bespoke suit. So, you know, as opposed to, you know, walking into a tailor shop and uh, buying a suit off the shelf, 
Dr. Marks compared an individualized therapy to going in, having your measurements taken, and then having a tailor make a custom suit specifically tailored for your measurements. So individualized therapies are analogous in that uh, the therapy is engineered and manufactured for a specific individual patient. So one example of this is, for example, you can deliver a specifically engineered transgene insert that could vary between patients. And so, you know, it's clear that having such a shift to individualized therapies would present novel regulatory challenges in terms of evaluating the safety and effectiveness of these individualized therapies. You know, how do you conduct a clinical trial to determine whether an individualized therapy is safe and effective when there's only one patient in the clinical trial? And how do you go about evaluating the identity of an individualized therapy? These are all issues that FDA decided to solicit input from, from stakeholders. Uh, I think it was clear from the, the workshop that FDA is open to uh, meeting with sponsors, to getting their input on how they feel these approaches should best be addressed. And one concept I think that is important to recognize in thinking about this space uh, is the idea of a manufacturing platform technology. Uh, so kind of a, a standardized approach to manufacturing these individualized therapies. And one thought is that if it's difficult to evaluate the individualized therapies themselves, then maybe the regulatory focus should shift to the manufacturing platform technology, such that if FDA can become comfortable with sort of the standardized aspects of how these individualized therapies are made, then maybe that sort of serve as sort of a proxy for the safety and effectiveness of the individualized therapies. And uh, I think, Jane, I think you may have some insights as to how uh, public-private partnerships may be one way to approach the development of these kinds of... I wanted wanted to chime in really quick because one of the things that came to my mind directly is, and I'm a BD person, so money is an issue, right? So with right. this individual therapies, from time to time, you read into in the newspaper with the million dollar short, okay. uh, for example. So I think finances and financing such right. therapies are an additional issue. Are you going to pay privately for a $5 million therapy and who has that? And find an insurance company who is willing to cover those costs. So, um, right. And I, and I think FDA is, is aware of that, right? That is kind of, I think what Bert just said and what you said complements each other really nicely with some of the things FDA is thinking about right now. One of the things that we've heard about, this was even before COVID, but it's, it's going, it's moving ahead. It's just a little bit slow is that FDA is trying to think about, you know, current manufacturing platforms and how they can help this process and how do they make this commercially feasible? Because Julius, like you mentioned, Let's say we even figure out the standards and how to get it done. What about the commercial aspect of it? So one of the things that FDA has announced recently is a collaboration with the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences and NIH to develop a public-private partnership for individualized gene therapies. So like you said, those that lack a commercial interest or that are so ultra-rare that they're for one or two people that it's really technically difficult to do. And there is a couple of solutions that are that are being floated. This collaboration was first thought about last year and earlier in the year, there's been announcements about it, which Bert, I'm sure at that meeting, it was potentially talked about. But there's a couple of things, the ways that this could work. One of the things they're thinking about is that you can kind of have a vector that's developed by academic investigators, but then once you have it progressed enough where you have enough evidence, that that could be then transferred to manufacturers once they show promise in early clinical trials. So that's one idea that's floating. Another one that I think goes to what Bert was talking about is that there's currently a pilot program at the um, NCATS, which is the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, which seeks to develop a vector platform. So we'll have a single platform, which is then able to deliver different types of transgenes for different types of diseases for individual patients. 
So you have mm -hmm. the, the same system to develop the same vector, same manufacturing process, same everything. And the only change you'll do is the disease state and the different transgene. So the idea is that you'd really streamline this process completely. Right now, unfortunately, it is a bit slowed down. You know, last we heard publicly, COVID's imp impacting everything. So this is one of the initiatives that has been slowed down, at least from what we heard last time publicly from the agency. But they are moving forward with potentially leveraging that pilot and NIH. And we'll, we'll kind of see what, what, what's happening with this. But this is a big area where, you know, FDA is showing a lot of focus. Um, you know, FDA is also thinking about non-clinical um, challenges for therapies like gene editing, which need a human construct in order to do testing. You can't really do it in animals easily. But, you know, it's a really interesting time. And I think FDA is taking those considerations into account as to how to make this commercially feasible. And I think a public-private partnership is likely what we're going to see. But with that need, with all the parties involved, sharing all the information they have, and that they are willing to share the informations and the data they so far were able to discover and produce. Right. And that's in it, right? Yeah. Well, one of the potential projects would be kind of a consortium, and it would be ent entities from government, industry, and academia, and they would help with the production of the vectors to be used in the development of the therapy. Um, mm -hmm. And then essentially the consortium would provide facilities for generation of the vector and small batch production. And so he kind of envisions that people are going to have to kind of agree to come together to do this so they can both reap the benefits. And then for the study that's going on at NIH, that's going to be public. So the findings okay. of that will be shared with the public. It is a public study so that mm -hmm. um, even potentially private entities will be able to benefit from, from the ongoing research that's happening at NIH. But I also wanted to add that you raise an important point, Julius, which is navigating the this area is going to take some careful thought and planning and so experts in intellectual property protection experts in government contracts that know the rights that the government has when the government has invested money in a project and experts in the sort of the various regulatory impacts including reimbursement are very important so that companies will be able to cooperate and, and get the benefits of that cooperation without completely losing all that they need to, to have a commercial benefit at the end. And Hogan Lovells actually has that collaborative dynamic. And we have, for example, our, our health group has been leading the initiative in sort of advocating before the Center for Medicare Medicaid on reimbursement payments in this area. And our intellectual property lawyers have been putting a lot of thought into this area too. And we all sort of work together to try to come up with innovative solutions to achieve, to help facilitate this kind of innovative approach to bring the best cutting edge medicines to patients while still making it commercially feasible. That's the most marketing we have done on the last since the last 10 episodes for our firm. <laughs> Un unabashed uh, plug. But we yeah. really do. I was just on a yeah, call. We, yeah, definitely. Yeah. With um, about I, six different lawyers in all different angles trying to figure out for a company how to get the right solution. Yeah, that was my first thought um, when, you, when you talked about it. I have one thing coming back, and I think it touches more the of often drug than the individualized therapies. The clinical trials going on for the development of often drugs, since it's not there is no centralized clinical therapies, and they're, since they're so less, there are not many patients getting affected and in, in need for this, those kind of medicines. Especially in this time, and we talked about the impact of COVID-19, that must be really, really difficult to companies to go forward with their clinical trials and follow up and continue the clinical trials based on the fact that there is no traveling allowed. Um, you can't go back and forth. Luckily, you can exchange information, but in person, you're not able to ship all the products you can, you need. That is a, a major issue. Uh, you, and you mentioned it a bit in the beginning of our conversation, but I just wanted to raise it again. I can't imagine how difficult it is for the development of this kind of specific drug. 
Oh, yeah. And also the follow-up. So, you know, it's risky for patients to go back and have the follow-up testing to which is necessary to prove that the product both works and is safe and didn't they didn't have side effects. So all these are challenges uh, that companies have been working really hard to address. I mean, some of the same social distancing measures that have been put in place for for to try to get the economy moving is is equally and even more so applicable to the clinical trials, assuring that patients, I mean, um, subjects, which is what they're called when they're uh, volunteering to essentially be a guinea pig um, yeah. to advance science, are not putting their lives uh, more at risk than they otherwise would. They already are accepting the risk of taking a therapy that hasn't yet been proven to be safe or effective, but to then assure them that they won't be taking more than that risk just by showing up. Yeah. I don't know, Jane and Bert, if you had other thoughts about about the the things that companies are doing or or other implications. Well, I think implications wise, is, you know, there can be a lot of gaps, right, in the data. Whatever you might have planned for your study and what you have, the protocol and what happened might not match. And how do we work to get, still meet the standard? And is it sufficient for FDA's purposes? So, you know, at least some of the things I've been hearing is FDA is trying to work with people on an individual basis to try to help because they understand the issue that's happening right now but it's a real it's a real struggle um julius like you raise a, a really big deal because it's facing the whole industry and especially you know cell and gene therapy products that are for orphan indications um those are likely getting hit really hard and there are going to be potential you know gaps in their data and how do we salvage those studies you know that might be a little different than the protocol or what was planned and can we somehow still move it forward to continue the development of the program so you know, we're hopeful that the delay is not too big, but, you know, it, it is something everybody's facing that. And I believe FDA is going to try to work with people on an individual basis and try to move things along as best as they can. And I don't know, Bert, you know, from your experience, if you have any insights. Yeah, certainly COVID has presented significant challenges just in terms of the logistics of conducting clinical trials, as uh, we've all discussed. And uh, one specific issue that's been that we've seen some of our clients face is just the delivery of the investigational drug to a patient. Um, when a patient would, under normal circumstances, come into a study site to receive the drug, uh, we've now seen FDA suggest that perhaps clinical trial protocols can be amended in certain circumstances such that the investigator can send the drug uh, directly to the patients for self-administration. So that's something that we've seen some of our clients consider also utilizing remote cap capability, right? In terms of protocol amendments, something that was supposed to be done in person, it, to the extent it can be done remotely, I think we're seeing a heavier reliance on remote trial kind of checkpoints or follow-ups and, you know, FDA's showing a little bit of flexibility to amend those protocols so that people can go ahead and get this done as fast as they can. But on the other hand, in, in during the approval process, which ideally comes after clin the clinical trial, the FDA, for my understanding, could take it into account f at some for some parts, but in the end, it's a liability issue, right? So if your clinical trial is not full and the data is not, I don't even like how to word it properly, but that is an issue, and it's an issue for the for the companies providing those products as well as for FDA when they give out the approval, right? Yeah, well, we're seeing that now with the COVID products themselves and and the and the vaccines. FDA has authority talking about discretion. FDA has authority called an emergency use authorization, which yeah. which permits companies to market and distribute a product before there's been an entirely full showing, based on the current risk benefit to patients that otherwise, without anything, are at risk of death. But on the other hand, you know, have to balance, is it worthy of trying this therapy that's had only preliminary or, or intermediate levels of evidence? So these are, these are all, you know, difficult questions, which you're right, Julius, companies, although they get a certain amount of cover from an FDA approval and an emergency use authorization and a certain amount of liability protection there's actually some something called the prep act which which provides a certain amount of protection 
to um, companies that are developing and distributing um, these kind of products, it's important to understand the limits of those um, and to, to, to ensure that you're doing everything that will ensure that you're within that protection. And, and so, yeah, these are all ongoing, really cutting edge, <laughs> important issues that we are dealing with constantly. I just I just checked our talking points and I, we got we got through all the points in a good amount of time. <laughs> I'm super happy that we were able to stay under an hour. <laughs> yeah. But uh, before before we kind of end this conversation which I found super interesting. Okay. Um is there anything um you would like to raise? And I'm going to stop you, Mike, because we had enough for promo enough promotion. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, really, um, this is super interesting, and we can just repeat that. Uh, as Mike said, we have a lot of lawyers in this company <laughs> who are able to support you, bringing your product to market and cover all areas, legal areas, to be successful as possible in that terms. Anything else you would like to raise before we go into the outro? <laughs> Only, I guess, that you know, everyone's in this together, right? This global pandemic impacted everybody, global regulatory you know, authorities, not just FDA. So, you know, to the extent there was, you know, efforts to harmonize, you know, for the gene therapy cell space, you know, that might be delayed. But it is encouraging that there is a, a desire to work together and find kind of more harmonization in this field and move the field forward. So I think, you know, it's kind of a message of everyone's in this together. It's difficult, but kind of hopeful that, the, you know, the regulatory bodies are eager to work together. We are eager to get harmonization and move this field forward. And I think it's a promising future for this field. So, I mean, maybe to end on a positive note, you know, <laughs> something I would say. It's, it's hard, but, you know, there is a silver lining in that it's bringing everybody together, you know, to think about these issues very seriously and how do we move it forward. For the listener, you can't see us, but we are all on Zoom and everyone's nodding and just agreeing on that. So, Perfect way to end. I have nothing else. I think we covered what we wanted to. So thank you. All right. Jane, Bert, Mike, thank you for joining me. It was super interesting. I'm pretty sure we could easily fill an additional hour. Oh, easily. But um, <laughs> we have to, to spare the listener <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Um, but I'm, I'm, I would be happy to continue this conversation, especially when we hopefully see an end to this tunnel and uh, we can, can do take a quick look in the glass bowl and talk about what's coming and what is happening after the pandemic. Right. So, well, thank you for having um, us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much for joining me and looking forward to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you so much. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Jane, Bert, and Mike, I'll link the bios in the description below. If you don't want to miss any new episodes and you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We are going to hear each other in about two weeks, so thank you for tuning in. We are looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.